I'm Daryl Brugink, and welcome to the 21st episode of our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, On-Farm Research Results, The Many Things One No-Tiller Has Learned, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to TopCon Agriculture for sponsoring today's episode. From planning to precision machine control, Norex boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Marion Calmer's approach to farming can be summarized by the following words. We can't improve what we don't measure. That approach was taken by this Alpha Illinois no-tiller from some very humble beginnings. Today, he's highly respected for his on-farm research and has been honored as one of the 25 living legends of no-till. He was also one of the early recipients of a No-Till Innovator Award. Calmer's research measuring both the yield and profitability of farming practices led to the creation of Calmer Agronomic Research Farm. It also led him to start his own business, Calmer Cornheads, with the invention of a 15-inch row corn header. And he has developed stalk roll replacement kits for combines to better process corn residue at harvest for a better no-till planting experience the next spring all behind what he learned from on-farm research. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by TopCon Agriculture, we look back on my recent interview with Marion Calmer, where he talks not only about the importance of on-farm research, but shares the many things he's learned from research on his corn and soybean operation in Western Illinois. You know, I've been at it now for 32 years and um, you know the protocol that we use is really important because if you're going to go to the work of doing some on-farm research let's make sure that the data is going to be accurate and, and going to be valid so one of the first things was to to get multiple replications and so in the early days before the onset of auto steer and GPS you know we, we used to go out and, and actually mark out the plots in the morning and then we would, you know, for instance, set the corn planter up for 15-inch rows. And so we'd plant 15s, and then we'd skip a pass and plant 15s and skip a pass and plant 15s. And so we'd, we'd do that four or eight different times, you know, and then we'd go switch the planter over to 30-inch rows, and then we'd go fill in the, the plots that were in between. So hopefully when the corn came out of the ground, we'd have 15s and then 30s, 15s, 30s, 15, 30s, and go across the field like that. And and we also looked at the, the length of row, and we found out that as we increased the sample size, we also started to decrease uh, the coefficient of variation or the amount of natural yield variability that there is between uh, replicates. So 
that helped us quite a bit as well. So we we run the length of the field, which is at least a quarter of a mile. Sometimes uh, if we're on half mile rows, of course that's even even better yet. So those those were some some biggies. But then with the the onset of the technology that we have today, I mean on farm research is easier today than it than it's ever been. We barely even crawl out of the cab anymore, and when we pull in, uh, we always kind of pull in at the beginning of the plots at, at a little bit of a diagonal. So you have a little blank triangle next to the endros where you don't have to worry about setting any flags or trying to find the flags at harvest. And then we set up the auto steer and, and it's it's pretty easy to just skip a line and then plant back and skip a line and plant down. And so it's it's real easy to get these these different scenarios and then, of course, at harvest time, most everybody has uh, electronic scales, and we've got yield monitors, and, and so our yield monitor is, is basically used to give us length of row, and it gives us the average moisture, and then we actually weigh it at the end of the field and into the green cart, and then basically all we have to do is just come home and punch the information into the computer and it, it all comes up pretty quickly. So uh, yeah, the, the, the learning curve's been kind of fun, but today it's uh, certainly made it easy to be able to study different technologies. Well, it sounds like, you know, how it's advanced to, to make this job easier doing this research. And I'm sure it's something you recommend all farmers do. I mean, that you must place a lot of importance on, you know, what you measure. Oh, absolutely. With every passing day, the, the farm economy seems to be becoming tighter than it was the year before, more competitive for cash rents, and put costs are still relatively high in, in relationship to the grain markets, you know, where they're at today versus, you know, five years ago. It was anybody could make money at $7 corn, but now it's, you know, 350 corn and, and beans have come down as well. You know, you got to be sharp, and I guess one of the statements I like like to make is I'd, I'd prefer to farm smart first, and then I'll farm and work hard second. And as we get older, I think that becomes more and more important. Yeah, as you're collecting this research, it appears that your two main measurements are going to be one yield, but then also profitability, and that kind of probably gets to your farm smart statement there, I would imagine. Yeah, the, the profitability thing started kicking in. Well, fortunate enough to survive the 80s, I kind of started on my own, and that uh, almost was overlooked. You know, the first 10 years that I farmed, you know, coming out of college, it was, you know, how many acres could you farm, and how many pigs could I raise, and you know, how hard could I work. It, it, that all seemed to be fun, and then you know, when the when the 80s came around, it kind of like. <laughs> You know, you got to be able to pay the bills. And to, again, back to the, the original statement that necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, I, I needed to make money to make payments on the farm. And let's let's take a good close look at, at what we're doing and farm as profitably as we can. Let's get into some of this research that you've done. And I, I want to start right with some corn roll spacing stuff that you've done. It's It's been a big one for you. You've primarily been looking at 15-inch rows versus standard 30-inch rows over a lot of years. And everything you've done is, I think, you've, you've got a lot of a five-year studies, at least, you know, results over five years in individual. But why don't you take us through, you know, what you found in reference to uh, the corn roll spacing in 15s and 30s? Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. The uh, the first thing that we learned is that in 15-inch rows or 20-inch rows, you know, things tighten up pretty quickly, and, and compaction can be the one item that, that will nullify the, the yield advantage that is there for both 15s and 20s if they're done correctly. 
and so the tires are, are kind of an issue on the tractor, but also positioning the, the rows. So uh, we, we went from an odd number of rows on any given 15-inch planter and uh, switched it over to an even number of rows, and then we would slide the drawbar off to one side, and that way it, it allowed us to leave the tractor set up for, as it was, the tires for 30-inch rows, and then we were planting two rows on the edges of the rear tires of the tractor instead of that one row smack dab down the middle. And some of the early studies that we did, that that one row that went right down the center of the the rear tractor tire, there could be a 30-bushel drop. And I I think we all realize there's no upside to compaction. And it's just something that can be easily overlooked during that initial adoption of, of narrow rows. And the other thing is that, you know, when it comes time to spray, whether it be pre-emerge or post-emerge, we like to spray at 90 degrees to the corn rows, and that way we don't run the risk of, of driving over the top of one corn row, and they'll fill back in, and that, that seems to go pretty good. But I think that, you know, one of the bigger advantages that, that jumps right out at you is the phenomenal weed control, and uh, with the onset of... Uh, Roundup resistant uh, water hemp and you know some other tough weeds to control. But, uh, you know, was corn's a grass, and I tell everybody let's let's treat it like one. And uh, we we don't see anybody's front yards in rows, or we we certainly don't see uh, anybody's pastures in rows, or you know nobody grows hay in rows. Uh, grass grasses are meant to be solid seeded, so that's kind of the concept that we've been looking at and trying to iron out some of those problems that can arise during the during the planting process. Well, that was a good summary of what you've been finding on 15s versus 30s. I know looking at the research, I think uh, from 2010 to 14, you've got a, a five-year study, and, and it showed that um, your 15-inch rows were doing eight bushels better. And then from an economic standpoint, that was relating to $40 more in, in profit. And so w- within within that five years, is was that pretty consistent? Do you ever find any uh, conditions that may seem to favor 30s over 15s in, in there? You know, not not really. Um, it, it You know, it, it varies from year to year. I think the lowest we've, advantage we've ever seen is, you know, like four or five bushel. And uh, we've we've had a couple years where where it's been up around 15. I I've never seen uh, you know anything any greater than that. It it seems from a weather point of view, and as you start to sit back and think about this logically, the the more stressful the growing season is, the bigger the yield advantage is going to be to to favor the narrow rows. And in 30 inch rows, you know the plants are all competing for sunlight, water, and nutrients. And, you know, so you've got the above ground and the below ground competition so that the neighboring plant almost becomes a weed in 30-inch rows. But in 15s, especially at 28,000, we're 15 inches by 15 inches. And the plants basically have their own area to, to grow in. And so when we reduce the competition, when, when they're looking, you know, when, when things start to get dry and they're, everybody's looking for moisture, and you reduce the competition. We're we're basically trying to get uh, the roots to explore uh, every square inch of the soil profile so that we can maximize the, the ability to pull water out of the ground. And, of course, then um, if, it, if we have a lot of cloudy weather, we can maximize the amount of uh, sunlight interception because uh, 
corn plants a, a solar collector, and, and it loves that photosynthesis. So uh, I think some of the, the new world records now for corn yields are, are growing in 15-inch rows, I think, which would back up that philosophy as well. Okay, well, let's let's take a look at corn populations. In your studies, you've kind of looked at populations, I, I know recently from, you know, like 30,000 all the way up to 55,000. I think you've kind of done that at 5,000 uh, seed intervals. Um, and has this work been done on 15s and 30s or one or the other? Or? Yeah, in the in the early days, we, we looked at it both 15-inch and 30-inch. And depending on the hybrid and the genetics, it, it seemed like the yield curve, they, they were very similar. I don't know that I could tell you that there's a, a population slash row spacing interaction that, that maybe we used to believe about back in the early 90s. So... I think the the response to to population is is pretty similar in both row spacings. Yeah, I know you've tried to push these populations up quite a bit, but it appears I think overall though you've settled somewhere, perhaps 30s, 35s, and in that area it seems to remain uh, in the studies you've done probably the most profitable. Is that correct? Yeah, in the early days, you know, everybody would come out, oh, you need to plant more seed and so that you can get a higher yield. And I'm like, oh, yeah, great. And But the reality of it is that the purpose of increasing population is, is number one, is to increase profitability. And in several studies that we've done, we've increased population and we've increased yield. The only problem was we, we didn't get a, an economic response. And I tell everybody that seed's not cheap anymore. So uh, we're we're always looking at the you know the payback at uh, three hundred and twenty dollars a bag. I mean that that means that every thousand kernels is going to cost you four dollars. So if corn's three fifty up to four dollars, let's say corn's four bucks. Well, if you increase population by one thousand, you've you've got to have one bushel just just to break even. A lot of the studies that we found that uh, really. You know, certain genetics, uh, I, there was a Stein number that we looked at, and uh, we we could get an economic response up to 35,000, but then after that, uh, the, the yield climbed a little bit, but it wasn't enough to overcome the cost of the seed. Now, the DeKalb genetics, the one that we, we happen to like, a little different uh, hybrid, a little, little different stature to genetic-wise, and it, it, again, has that same thing. I, I can get a yield advantage by increasing population, but I, I actually lost money trying to get it. So uh, that particular number at, at my farm, uh, 28,000, 15-inch rows, is, is the one that seems to be the most profitable and work, working good for us. It's interesting. There's a, a lot of farmers, I think, who do like to look at, you know, corn hybrids and they like look at different companies, what they have to offer. And I, I think it's probably generally accepted. A lot of guys will take the best performers on their farm from one year, keep them going in their operation the next year, and then bring in a few new ones. Do you do much with corn hybrids right now? And how do you recommend that guys work with corn hybrid studies trying to find out what works on their farm? You know, there's there's a lot of information that floats around on hybrid selection, and the thing that always made me a little nervous was, uh, you know, what's what's the protocol used? You know, a lot of signs along the road, and you know, the the plots are, you know, at, at best maybe 50 foot long, and uh, boy, in my opinion, that's that's pretty tough to get any accurate data, that, and um, I would still go back and 
and, and encourage people to, to take the time to try to put in some hybrid studies at home. I mean, the planners nowadays, uh, you know, somebody pulling a 60-foot planner and they got an eight-row cornhead, well, you, you've got a chance if it's not bulk fill, um, you know, you, you would have that opportunity to, to put three different hybrids um, out there in the field. Uh, and if it's bulk fill, you could, you know, you could, you could do two, if it's got two tanks on it, you could do two hybrids. And so it, it, again, I still like to, to see it myself and like to do it at home. And then I, again, the confidence level, it gets to be a lot higher. You've been working with the University of Illinois here recently, you know, to study the impact of corn residue and in in in, in looking at the way it's processed at harvest on, on the yields of continuous corn the next year. So why don't you take us through that a little bit, what, you, what you've found here in the early going of this research? Continuous corn is certainly a challenge when, when we get into no-till and the, even conventional tillage, uh, you know, the We've got some people that we work with that you know grow even as much as 500 bushel corn, and you can imagine how much residue is out there in the field. But uh, in continuous corn, we think it's really important to uh, be able to size that material and and get it to decompose even quicker, and therefore um, giving us that ability to recycle the the nutrients. Now that the big one is nitrogen. And uh, the bigger the pieces of corn stalks are that are laying out in the field, the more nitrogen that's going to be tied up, both the residual nitrogen that's in the stalk and also any new nitrogen that might be applied gets tied up in, into the larger pieces. So the, we, we think one of the successful parts of, of uh, corn on corn is to not only be able to make small pieces, but to, to get them sheared into two halves so that we expose the pith. And that's beneficial to the earthworms, the microbes, um, and it certainly accelerates the decomposition, but the, the biggie is that it, it uh, releases that nitrogen back into the soil. So uh, University of Illinois took a look at it, uh, multiple replications. They, they were running OEM or original equipment uh, stock rolls in one side of their research, and then the other side we used the uh, BT choppers to size it up into to smaller uh, material. During the growing season, uh, it, it was pretty obvious that the smaller the residue, the faster the emergence. They had a higher total stand in the field in continuous corn. And then as the corn got to be shoulder high, you could actually look down in between their 30-inch their rows and where the, the material had been sized. The corn had a lot less firing, and, and of course that tells us that uh, we've got more nitrogen available. And then the final result at uh, harvest, their conclusion was that the, uh, the Calmer BT choppers, by sizing that residue, uh, gave them about a 10-bushel uh, yield advantage. They certainly believe that uh, continuous corn. This is one of the uh, one of the keys to success: is uh, getting the, the smaller the pieces, the faster the degradation, and the better the yield. We'll get back to Marion in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. From planning to precision machine control, NORHAC's boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. 
Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit TopConPositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon Agriculture Application Solutions make agronomy work for you. One of the things that's impressed me about what Marion Calmer is doing in his on-farm research is that yield is only just one part of the equation. It's not the end-all be-all. The end result is profitability. He wants to know if what he does on his farm is better for the bottom line. Marion also stresses that the results he's seen with his on-farm research apply first and foremost to his farm. Will they work for you? Perhaps. Do the results provide some good guidelines for what you might want to do or test on your farm? Absolutely. The fact is you need to measure your farm practices to be better at what you do. Let's switch gears with Marion from talking about corn and take a look at what he's learned from on-farm trials involving soybeans. And then we're going to wrap up our conversation with some very intriguing results regarding applications of NP and K. But, we return to hear Marion talk about his work on soybean row spacing. Yeah, in the early days, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, we were conventional till, and there were some people running around with some drills, and, you know, the neighbor, you know, he had 30-inch rows, and I think one of the other neighbors had some 36-inch rows, and, so in the early days, we we basically looked at it all the way from a drill up to almost 40 inches wide, and it was pretty obvious on that that big of a spread that uh, there there was a yield advantage to um, the narrow rows for soybeans. And again, I'll go back and say the same thing as as I did on corn. Soybeans are a legume. You don't see anybody growing alfalfa in rows. So uh, I think the solid seeded concept is, is going to maximize yield, it's going to maximize weed control, and it's going to maximize erosion control. And it, it's just one of those bonuses that, that go along with no-till to preserve our uh, number one natural resource, which is the soil. Because uh, without the soil, uh, life would, I believe, cease to exist as, as we know it today. So the early days, you know, showed us the, the, the narrow rows, but as we continue to increase in acres and, and the speed, the need for speed at planting time, you know, people go to bigger planters, so, you know, they, they go to 15-inch rows, and of course now uh, we're seeing the 60-foot planters and, you know, the horsepower requirements if you're running bulk fill plus you've got air on the meters, you can um, you can burn up a lot of horsepower just, just making sure that the planter is operating. So uh, uh, we're, we're seeing more 30-inch rows uh, than we ever have in the past. But uh, I, I guess, I, you know, I think we're dead on here at this four-bushel difference between 30-inch rows, 15-inch rows. I mean, good Lordy, we've, we've got, uh, you know, uh, over a five-year period, you know, we get about a 20, 20 replications. We get to see multiple growing seasons and um, always seem to be getting relatively the the same answer. Now, I, I do get the question, if we go from 15s on down to a drill, and I'm, I'm going to give you uh, the studies that we had, I, I would say there's there's another two bushel if you're uh, if you like to drill beans. So there, there's a little reward if, if you want to get narrower. Now, on the flip side of this, though, the one thing that we're seeing more and more of every day, and, and maybe we'll we'll talk a little more here toward the end about residue management, but uh, 
the one thing that we notice with the people that are in 30-inch row beans and 30-inch row corn and with auto steer and mapping is that they're they're setting themselves up so that when they come back the following season, it's pretty pretty easy to, to, to slip in there and plant the 30-inch row beans right between the two old corn rows, which really reduces um, the problems with residue management. does a real nice job. We've got a few neighbors here that are really able to dial it in pretty tight, and they can get their two 15-inch rows between the 30-inch rows. keeps us out of that root ball keeps us from having to deal with the stubble. So there's there's some upside to the 30s, but from a profitability standpoint, at uh, $10 beans, you know, there's that's 40 bucks an acre. I think and I I think we look at our own no-till benchmark study uh survey that we do every year. I mean, we do see a lot of guys running planters for soybeans today, um more so than running drills. And perhaps one part of that reason is another study you've done that now we look into to populations a little bit. Uh, we've typically seen guys who are planting their soybeans using maybe about 10% less seed population than the guys who are drilling. And I know you've kind of looked at this population thing, and it, it almost appears like the game of limbo where you ask, how low can you go? I mean, tell us about your population studies on soybeans, because I think that's been really doggone interesting. A lot of people come up to me at the trade shows or conferences that I talk at, and this is probably the number one that that everybody comes up and and asks a lot of questions about. But, uh, you know, when I started farming, we were 40-inch rows, and, you know, soybeans, you could buy a a bag of seed for about eight bucks. And so really, population really wasn't a big issue because we weren't spending much money for seed, but... Nowadays, you know, I mean, a bag of seed be up there sixty bucks, so that's that's ten bucks for for twenty five thousand plants. So it, it, it's starting to get kind of cashy to buy the extra seed. But uh, uh, we we started in many many years ago and drilling beans at that two hundred twenty thousand. Then we started no tilling, you know, and and putting Keaton seed firmers on, and we were able to, you know, do a little better job, and we had more moisture, so we were able to ease up, and then on to 15-inch rows, and even a little bit better job of seed placement, and eased up on population, and so <laughs> we started laying out research plots that took us all the way from 200,000 mark all the way down to the 50,000 mark, and. We've had uh, we always have four replications, and these are pretty easy to do nowadays because everybody can uh, pretty much vary the, the the seeding rate from the cab, and with auto steer and soybeans, if you're pulling a 30 foot planter, just set the auto steer for 32 feet, and that way you'll have a little tram line. So at harvest time, I um, can uh, come in and and find those research plots real easy and and combine them and and put them in the cart. So, uh, you know, all the neighbors get a big kick out of driving past my soybean fields, and they they think that I didn't get the marker set right or the auto steer set right. But we we do this on on purpose. We always run four replications, and we always leave tram lines in, in between so that we know exactly what we're harvesting and and, uh, all the way from at 200,000 all the way down to 50,000. Yeah, and I think it's really amazing when you look at the long-term yield results on here. Pretty much at every population, you went from 50,000 to 200,000 in in 25,000 increments. 
And you've averaged 69 bushels across the board with the exception of 200, which was actually a big bump of one bushel to 70, <laughs> you know. But, you know, it clear, it showed you that 50,000 was actually your most profitable rate to plant at. My, my big question is, have you had the, you know, the courage to do that across <laughs> your farm? <laughs> oh, yeah, we get that question quite quite a bit. And, I, again, I it uh, it took quite a while for me to build the confidence to to start to throttle back on population and in fact even some of the planters that we use you know we had to go make special sprockets to get them to plant you know thin enough <laughs> and um but the uh, for for many many years uh planting on the screen at, at 75,000 was the most economical and just over the last couple of years, with the jump in in the cost of seed and then the price of soybeans coming on down, it, it believe it or not, the long term data that I've got would would indicate that uh, planting at fifty thousand is going to be the most profitable. Now, people talk about well, what happens if you get a crust? Well, I spend the money to to, to treat the soybeans. And therefore, if we do get a crust, uh, you know, we're going to be able to weather that a couple extra weeks in there with the crust and still uh, still have viable beans to come up out of the ground. It, uh, it, it does. It, it scares the living daylights out of me. I remember that first year, we, we finally dropped from 120,000 all the way down to 75,000. And that, that first pass down through the field, just seeing 75,000 on the screen, it, you know, it, it gives you a lot of anxiety. And so, but... I kept saying, you know, I got all these research plots and uh, 20, 30 replications over six years. And sure enough, at harvest time, the, the beans were there. So this this one's pretty easy to study at home. I'd really recommend that everybody try it. And that's where you get the confidence is doing it at home, watching them grow. But uh, you know, when you drive down the road, you know, the, the 50,000, they look pretty skimpy. In the 200s, you know, they look real pretty. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not about being pretty. It's about being profitable. And at fifty, seventy-five thousand range, right there. That that's all the beans you need, uh, in my opinion, to to grow a phenomenal crop. Uh, I want to shift gears here. We're gonna we're gonna look at some fertility here real quick. You've done a number of studies on fertility. Uh, seed certainly is expensive, but fertilizer applications they can hit the pocketbook quite hard. And I I know through our benchmark study we've done of our readers. Typically, fertilizers might be their biggest bill on the farm outside, in many cases, for some guys, land rent. So this is really important, and we want to start with P and K. I know you've tried to measure the economic response of adding P and K to your program, and I think what you've done is you've, you've compared it to when you don't put any P and K out there, and you've looked at, at different levels. So kind of give us a little look into what you found when it comes to what you're spending and, and what you're applying with, with, with your phosphorus and your potassium. Prices of, of P&K started to skyrocket shortly after the price of corn uh, took off there 10 years ago. But that was some of the first studies that we did back in the mid-80s. Back then, of course, you know, we broadcast it over the top and moldboard plow it, and then, of course, we went to chisel plowing it in the ground and then you know we went to we're just maybe disking it into the ground and of course now we're you know no tilling so it's it's uh, being spread over the top and uh, there there's several times uh, we we looked at root zone banding and we've looked at starter fertilizer in in all of these aspects so on my farm in western illinois where i've got some of these nice ipava tama soils you know uh, black in color and and uh, good good nutrient supplying power. 
my conclusion is that the the odds for an economic response to to adding P and K are pretty slim. Of all the research that I've done, this this is the one that has me the most baffled. Even though the there's definitely a cosmetic effect where where we put on P and K. I was just out there yesterday, and uh, you can stand in the field and where where there hasn't been any P and K over the last ten years, the corn was about waist high, and we could we could visually see that there there's the potassium deficiencies are starting to show up a little bit, especially under stress, uh, which is the outer edges of the corn leaf are yellow and burnt just a little bit. Now nitrogen deficiencies, of course, is is seen the, the yellowing down the center. Uh, of the corn leaf. Now, I've never been able to visually see any phosphorus deficiencies. That one's um, not a concern of mine. Um, but on the flip side, where we have been applying P and K, I, I mean, we, we didn't even have to look to see where the border was at. Uh, it was that obvious. That corn's about shoulder high. So there's a huge difference, cosmetic and, and growth-wise. Um, you can see that today. Number two, uh, you know, over the past 10 Ten years, uh, these plots have been there consecutively um, of, of uh, not applying phosphorus potassium. So we have 60 feet with fertilizer and 60 feet without, and 60 feet with fertilizer and 60 feet without. And um, I will also tell you that there is a yield advantage to phosphorus and potassium. That's obvious almost every year, whether it be a, a corn-soybean rotation, pick up one or two bushels on the on the soybean side and you pick up five to ten bushel on the on the corn side. So there is a yield advantage to, to P and K. <laughs> but the, the, the thing that I take issue with is that the primary purpose of, of applying P and K is to improve profitability. What your soil tests say or what the crop looks like is is, you know, number two, number three down the list. I got to get some kind of a return here and uh, I don't think anybody goes to the bank and puts $100,000 in the bank and then comes back a year later and says, well, just give me back 70000 That's good enough. Well, <laughs> that's not going to work, I don't think, for anybody. And I'm the same way with dry fertilizer. You know, I'm going to write the uh, the fertilizer guy a check for 100000 for P&K. You know, I'd, I'd like to harvest $110,000 worth of grain, you know, to make me feel better about it. So that's kind of where I'm at. We're, we're struggling to get an economic response to P&K. Yeah, I think it's interesting all these years you've done this, and I think I noted one year in 2014, you did see that with soybeans, you did see an economic response. But otherwise, I think throughout the history, you haven't seen that economic response by adding P and K. But as you see things visually starting to happen, are you thinking that there could be a tipping point coming? I imagine you're kind of waiting for it to see if there is a tipping point and especially as you you measure what's in your soils. And if you get to that tipping point, do you think it'll take you much to turn it around if you have to come in and add P and K? You know, what do you think is going to happen there in the future when you look at this study? Well, I I think that right now it it would appear that the the potassium for my soils, we're going to need to go in and add some potassium. The the phosphorus, I I don't think is much of an issue to us at, at all. The discoloring, and sometimes if, if we run a post-emerge herbicide program, that'll that'll trigger the, that discoloration even even quicker. Stressful growing seasons will will trigger it as well. So it it doesn't seem like it takes very much potassium to to make it uh, pull out of that. Uh, we also want to look at the stratification. Is there a possibility in no-till? 
that maybe the fertilizer is getting stratified. And, uh, you know, we know that the roots are certainly, uh, the majority of the roots are down from, from three, four inches on, on down to three to four foot. And we know that phosphorus and potassium don't, don't move a lot in the, uh, the soil profile. So uh, it's certainly a concern of mine. I guess right now, you know, <laughs> It's kind of interesting. I just turned 60, so I'm I'm kind of getting near the end of my career of being in production farming. And as I look at this P and K thing, I I, I think about growing up. We we have a, a nice uh, timber where we used to raise cattle and a lot of nice big oak trees, and and some of them are 150 years old. And I I know that there's never been any phosphorus or potassium applied to the to those oak trees and. But every year they grow a crop of acorns, they grow a crop of leaves, you know. So Mother Nature, I, th- I think, has a little more ability to produce nutrients as plants grow. Of course, anybody that's chopping silage or baling hay, you know, where we're 100% removal, uh, we certainly have got to be coming back in with, with P and K for those, replacing the, the nutrients that are, that are hauled away. But in simple grain production, uh, the purpose of applying P and K is to to spend a dollar and and get a dollar ten or dollar fifty back in in yield. I th- I think that's fine. And there's certain parts of the country where that's pretty easily done. But boy, at my farm, we've been at it for ten consecutive years, and uh, I think the, the cumulative loss here, where I've been applying fertilizer over the ten years, is is uh, three hundred and thirty seven dollars. <laughs> uh, and on a thousand acres, I mean that's three hundred thirty-seven thousand dollars that basically was spent that didn't get any return out of it. So uh, this is a this is a biggie, and it warrants, I, I think, uh, a person to take a look at it. Well, let's talk about the third nutrient amongst the big three, and that's nitrogen. I, I know similarly, you've done check plots where you don't apply uh, nitrogen, and I think you've gone up like sixty pounds, hundred pounds, one hundred forty pounds. And it's interesting, again, you you measure results not only by yield, but you look at the profit margin and, and return on investment. And, and this one maybe appears a little different than what you find with P and K. Is that correct? or am I? Yep, absolutely. Nit- nitrogen's a big one, and uh, corn's a grass, and it, it's got a huge cosmetic response to, to nitrogen, but also a, a phenomenal economic response. It's just the complete opposite of P and K. The economic response to nitrogen uh, can be anywhere from three to five hundred percent return on investment, and I, I think anybody would jump at the opportunity to go to the bank and and drop them a hundred thousand and get a five hundred percent return on investment. And, and basically, the calculations that we have on nitrogen, it is the profitability that's associated with N is is tremendous. So uh, we've looked at it in starter fertilizers. You know, we had uh, three different tanks, two on the planter and one on the tractor. You know, we we had uh, 10-34-0, and then we had a 50-50 blend, and then we had just nitrogen only. And it was really obvious that nitrogen is, is where the, the money is at in, in a starter program, uh, three by three. And then we also looked at uh, no nitrogen, uh, 60 pounds. And it's that, uh, for, for anybody that's, that's uh, listening to this, uh, that, that first 60 pounds is, uh, is the biggie. That uh, really gets a, a nice boost. That, that one's a little over a 500% return on investment. So basically, it, the, the math that we used here, we, 60 pounds cost us $36, and we got 45 bushels of corn. So for 36 bucks, you know, it was over $225 worth of money. That we got back, so that that one's pretty big, 
Um, and then as we moved up to 100 pounds, we continued to increase our profit. Uh, this goes back to, to being an ag econ back in college, uh, the law of diminishing returns. So we, we added a little more nitrogen. We did increase our profitability, but it's starting to slow down. And then uh, at the 140 pounds in a corn-soybean rotation, we, we spent $84 for the nitrogen, and we've got 65 bushels in yield. And that's what I'm talking about is to spend a buck and, and get 5 or $10 back. That That's phenomenal. And so in that scenario, at the 140 pounds in a corn-soybean rotation, we had an additional profit of $241 an acre. So uh, nitrogen is pretty powerful stuff. And, uh, you know, if, if there ever comes that year where you really feel that you have to tighten the belt, nitrogen's not the place to do it because it's, it's the one that's bringing home the money. Well, and I think one of the things I've heard through all this research, and you've, you've said this phrase a few times, on my farm, and I, I know that there's probably some things here that, that we can all learn from and, and take and use, but I think at the end of the day, you probably want to encourage guys, again, to check their own farm because everybody's got different soil types, different environments, and I, I would imagine you'd stress, you know, this is the importance of guys also trying to do it on their own farms. Yeah, you know, here's here's the thing. We're we're all so focused, and I'm guilty of it as well as anybody. It, you know, it's like, oh gosh, it's dry, and it's that window that we need to be planting corn and beans, and I'm too busy to to take time to put in some plots. But really, I, I take a little extra time in the spring and a little extra time in the fall. But gosh, you know, I'm I'm lucky to to spend an an, an extra day's worth of time to put out all of these research plots in the spring. And I don't even know that it takes us any extra time other than sitting on the end rows, you know, the, to unload versus dumping on the go uh, to record the information. It's just, you know, you have to be a little more meticulous and it's one extra thing to look at. But uh, on soybeans, you know, just in population and row spacing, I mean, you're, you're talking $80 an acre on a thousand acres of soybeans. That's $80,000 a year simply because we did a little on-farm research on the corn side. You know, the, the on-farm researchers, there's easily $100 an acre worth of information and things that I've learned that, that's improved you know, on my profitability on 1,000 acres of corn. There's, there's another 100000 So every year, that's $180,000 a year that I'm more profitable because I did on-farm research. Well, I certainly think I can I can spend an extra day in the spring and an extra day in the fall and make $180,000. I got to feel pretty good about it. Thanks again to Marion Calmer for sharing his philosophy on conducting on-farm research and some of the fascinating results he's seen. If you'd like to see the research report from the Calmer Agronomic Research Farm, go to notillfarmer.com and click on Podcasts under the Resources tab. Not only will you find a link to this podcast episode, but we will leave a link to Calmer's research report. If you enjoyed learning about Marion's on-farm research, you might want to consider joining us for the 26th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. The 2018 event is taking place for the first time in Louisville, Kentucky from January 9th through the 12th and there will be numerous presenters sharing valuable information and data that can help you be a better no-tiller. Register by August 31st to save $85. For more information or to register, visit notillconference.com. 
Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And we look forward to having TopCon Agriculture join us as a sponsor of our welcome reception at the National No-Tillage Conference in January. Now, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Marion Calmer, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Daryl Brugging. Thanks for listening.